Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Grant, welcome to the Arate Podcast. It's uh, fantastic to have an opportunity to have a chat to you about your career and your organisation and the exciting things you're up to. Why don't we just start, for the people who are listening in, just tell us a little bit about your current responsibilities. Sure. Well, currently, I'm the CEO of XLM, um, and we're a, uh, we're a company on the cusp of going from mechanical solutions, predominantly in mining services, to IoT-based technical solutions. Okay. And so, for people who are unfamiliar with what IoT means, uh, tell us a bit more about that. IoT is the internet of things and I break it down for people really simply it's machines talking to machines to tell you something mm-hmm. or machines talking to machines to do something for you okay so it's it's an intermediary it is I mean you know the, the perfect example that everybody sees nowadays is you as you arrive home your lights automatically turn on right um, in the industrial space it could actually uh, as a direct comparison, um, a product that we do is it turns on all the uh, light towers across the mine site or turns off all the light towers okay. and also lets um, the managers know the health of the life. Does it have fuel in it? Is yeah. it on? Is it off? Does it need to be serviced? Mm-hmm. Okay. Where, where is it? Yep. Which is actually a pretty big thing for, uh, for miners on a mine site. Oh, I'm sure because I suppose uh, a lot of these pieces of equipment are fairly remote and so having to travel around and yep. look at them, inspect them all individually would be it's a costly. big cost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, massive cost. Yeah, yeah huge. Sure. And so how long has uh, XLM been in existence for? Um, XLM's been in existence in its current form for just over uh, two years. Um, but in its previous form, probably about nearly five now. We bought the company a couple of years ago okay. um, and changed the name, changed the structure, Right. Um, but inherited some great products. Okay, and, and give us a sense of the, the size of the business now. Yeah, we're, we're still pretty small. I think you know, we're, we're a team of about 12 people. Uh-huh. Um, we've, we've just acquired a company which doubles our size mm-hmm. um, in the software development space. Um, and, you know, from a revenue perspective, we're in the multi-millions at this stage. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so uh, when this business was acquired, that's when you commenced as CEO? No, it's not actually. So I was the CEO of the Mitchell Group, which is a local family mm-hmm. uh, investment company. Um, and it, this was one of our acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And it was just something that really, really turned me on, I think. Uh, it was... There was some. There was a lot of reasons not to buy it, mm-hmm. um, but there were some very good reasons to buy it. Mm-hmm. So once we bought it, we actually put in a general manager um, that didn't quite work out in regards to the direction of the business we wanted to take it, mm-hmm. and I was kind of babysitting the business through that stage. Mm-hmm. And it had been, I think it had been nearly seven years since I had sold my last big business, and. Um, this to me was the perfect environment to get back in, you know, boots and all to run a mm-hmm. company from scratch. Okay. Um, so I stepped into the role just over a year ago. So you relinquished 
the your other CEO responsibilities within Mitchell yep. to focus purely on this. Yeah, I went. I, I just went up to a board level position. I think my two IC was at the stage where he could do most of um, the the running of the business. Okay, and. Um, and I still say, I mean, the Mitchells are our biggest investor, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and we still have a lot of exposure. I sit on a number of boards for those investments. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of cross-functioning um, realities between what we do and their other businesses. Okay, okay, great. Well, we'll come back to that, but let's uh, sort of go back to where it all began for you. So tell us yep. a little bit about, you know, where you were born and, you know, uh, mum, dad, mm-hmm. brothers, sisters growing up, high school, etc. Yeah, well, look, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't your storybook. So, you know, I grew up in Blacktown in Western Sydney um, and, you know, predominantly single mum, mm-hmm. um, 12... 14 different schools. Wow. Um, and then, with, you know, by myself from about 8 to 15. Okay. Um, so it was definitely not your storybook. There's nothing bad about yeah. the way we brought up, but yeah. it wasn't traditional, I guess. And brothers and sisters? Yeah, well, older, older brother, older sister. Okay. And, um, but we kind of were living apart and together throughout that, that whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went through, went through high school and interestingly, just after high school, I took a gap year from university. And this right. is back in 93. Yep. And I, I was hired by a friend's quite large uh, computer company building clone computers. And, mm-hmm. and I was doing sales. And, a, mm-hmm. and I started getting deep into the tech side. And I noticed that a bunch of my mates were at university doing computer science, which I was quite interested in at the time. Um, one were completely broke compared to what I was earning at the stage, and but two, the the universities hadn't caught up at that stage on mm. tech. Mm-hmm. So what I was doing out in the field was so much more advanced than what they were doing at university um, that I kind of just followed the career mm-hmm. and um, and ended up uh, you know selling some pretty large IT solutions. Got deep into back then what was called offline video editing, which today you can do on your mobile phone, but then was the first time, you know, home users could edit their own video or film, and got quite deep into um, that side of the business. And then um, that career kind of pushed me into compact computers, where I became uh, the director of consumer direct, and that was my first exposure to large scale business and um, uh, management. I had a great mentor there um, that was teaching me uh, how to manage people for the first time. That's always a challenge. Um, and then there was a redundant, big redundancy there, which pushed me into um, a decision where I took a year off mm-hmm. um, at 24 and lived in Italy for the mm-hmm. year, and, as we discussed. And, um, and then after that, I moved to London. And London's very different to Australia. Australia, Australia actually... Um, Australia likes people being generalist. You know, it is, we're a small population. Mm-hmm. We're punching above our weight significantly. Um, and it's good to have people with a broad set of skills. London at that back then was still very much what do you do, what school, what university did you go to, how do you fit into the box that I want? It was still mm-hmm. quite bureaucratic. Mm-hmm. And so I struggled a little bit when I first got to London. Uh, getting a job because being a generalist I didn't know where I sat Mm -hmm. so I ended up taking a part-time gig doing data entry 
um, for a funds management firm in Mayfair, and it was great. It was John Morell Associates, and the four partners sat in a big room with big mahogany desks, no computers. You know, their secretary would come in and uh, print up emails, and then they would dictate the email mm-hmm. response. And and it was data entry uh, of pension um, fund performance numbers. It was the worst, one of the worst <laughs> jobs I've ever had. And after about uh, a week of that, I just went up to the owner of the business, um, uh, David Morris, uh, who was a Canadian bloke, and, uh, and said, this is re- I-, I could build you a system here that could do all of this and more and more. And he said, oh, what aren't you? And so I did. And then I went on um, and ended up being their uh, director of um, uh, operations for this fund management firm. And the fund that we were actually creating was a systemized fund. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't fund picking as such. It was, it was working off trends within the markets or certain variables in the mm-hmm. markets. So somehow this uh, uneducated kid from Blacktown ended up being the managing director um, of this fund management firm. Uh, we were bought out uh, by a larger firm, which I would never have been hired for, but through the acquisition went through and... I was managing director of one of the, what ends up being one of the leading uh, finance advisory firms in London. And my mentor there, um, he um, uh, ended up being classed as the top, one of the top five financial influencers in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy called Mike Faulkner, really impressive guy. Complete genius, complete genius, and a good friend. Um, so the, the, the sort of the three mentors that I had, which was you know, an IT-based sales management um, career for a big firm into heavy finance management, IT-based, then into just finance management, um, I kind of got this real spread of skills of managing people but managing processes mm-hmm. at the same time at high level um, uh, what you know, fi- effectively finance and IT then it came to um, 2007 and one of my best friends at the time uh, we were supposed to meet in New York and drive across the country and, and do a trip and he said I've got an, I've in a convertible master. In a convertible, yeah. Just yeah. to you know, use the Aussie accent. So right. We'll both single, see how well it will go. And he said, um, I'm not coming. And I'm like, why? He goes, well, he worked for Rio Tinto at the time. And he's like, I've got an idea for a company. Mm. And he goes, I don't know anything about running a business. That's your specialty. You don't know anything about mining. Would you have a look at it for me? We could do it together. And it just happened to be in India. So he, I flew to Mumbai that weekend and he flew to Mumbai. And we, was he in Australia? Or he was in Australia. Australia. He right. was in Rio Tinto. Yeah. And we assess, I assessed the business plan. It stacked up and he introduced me to his partners or potential partners. And they stacked up and, and I said, you know what, what have we got to lose? So we started a company in Calcutta in India. So I moved to Calcutta. And, um, and the concept was we were going to sell coal washeries. Okay. And to be completely frank, at that stage, I thought people who washed coal washed coal. Mm. I didn't know that it was a whole process. Mm-hmm. And I knew nothing, actually. Um, and the first pitch we got there, we came to Australia, we worked on the business plan, we flew to Kolkata uh, via London, and he forgot to um, update his visa. 
Right. So he got kicked out at Calcutta. He had, got, had to couldn't even fly on to Australia. They had to fly back to London. Mm-hmm. And I had seven days of back-to-back meetings selling coal washeries to these large steel and coal industry, uh, companies in uh, in India. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything. Right. I, anyway, we got through it. I think he ended up going to a music festival in Budapest. <laughs> um, sent me photos. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the take-up was pretty good. So we... we Moved to Calcutta and then realised very quickly that the concept was wrong. Mm. It was going to be a very long time for India upgraded to the standard that we um, operate here for uh, coal washeries. And we were like, both had just started this business, put everything into it, moved countries. Mm-hmm. He came back to Brisbane working on a small contract um, and then we quickly pivoted into mining consulting, mainly geological consulting. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of luck, um, timing, mm-hmm. um, got us to a point where we grew to 50 million in three years. And I suppose at this stage you'd left Calcutta. No, I, I lived in Calcutta for a year. Okay. Um, and then we had the business there for five years, so mm-hmm. the second year a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it sort of petered down mm-hmm. from that point on. By the end, I think we were in seven countries. And right. We had 450 staff and... It was a decent-sized business. What was that called? Uh, Salva Resources. Okay. Um, and we sold that to an American engineering firm right as the mining boom was coming to an end. Mm-hmm. So we did quite well out of that, um, considering how it could have went. So you're talking about 2012? 2012, yeah. Um, and... At that point, it was a management buyout as well as an equity buyout. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't in a place where I wanted to work for an American engineering firm, and I, not particularly in geological consulting anyway. So I stepped away um, during the process, and Mitchell, uh, Nathan Mitchell, who was our, one of our investors, um, said, would you like to have a look at a couple of things for me? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, sure. And for six months, I said, I'll... You know, look at acquisitions and M and A stuff, which we've done previously, mm-hmm. and that was you know that six months turned into six years, mm-hmm. and we've looked at every business we've been running, farms, gold mines, drilling companies, uh, radiology businesses, IT businesses. So we've had a very broad mm-hmm. range of experiences in in M and A and actually stepping in and running these businesses. Mm-hmm. And then that led us to this acquisition. So two questions about that. So firstly, uh, uh, given it's such a broad range of different types of businesses, obviously your criteria for acquisition is not industry dependent. So what are the what are the criteria that you use to assess is this something that we want to mm-hmm. invest in and or acquire? Look, I think there's definitely a... Um, there's a lean towards mining-based industries, mm-hmm. and I think that just comes down because we understand it a bit mm-hmm. better. Um, but you know, you know, I own a few businesses now that are across um, different industries. Businesses are all the same. Mm. You know, there's definitely there's definitely uh, parts of the business that need to be specialised. But a core, at the core, um, you either build, produce. Um, you know, advise, you know, you need to sell it, you need to look after your clients, you need to look after your staff. Mm-hmm. Um, businesses are all people, you know, and I know that's a overused term, um, but the difference between hiring a good team and a bad team mm. um, are worlds apart. Mm. You know, it's not, you're not just losing out 
on not having good people, you're losing out of what bad people take away from the business mm-hmm. itself. Um, and when I say bad people, that's that's probably the wrong expression. You know, bad Inappropriate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, when it comes down to it, uh, especially in the CEO chair, your whole role is finding the right person for the right spot. You mm-hmm. know? And a big um, theme of mine is, you know, um, know your role, execute your role. Mm-hmm. You know? and, um, and I think if I had to say where some of my failures in the past and a lot of managers' failures has been um, losing sight of that to do the job, you know, mm-hmm. like I've got work to do, I need people in seats, mm-hmm. but the reality is your whole job is the right person in the right spot, mm-hmm. retaining them, looking after them, mm-hmm. controlling them, you mm-hmm. know, teaching them, training them, whatever it is, every person's different. And yet what's interesting about your career is, you know, you dramatically, you, you know, changed industry, mm-hmm. I'm working in, you know, large IT corporate I'm working in funds management. Yep. I'm working in a startup mining services yep. company. I'm now working, you know, uh, in the Mitchell Group. Mm-hmm. So people have put a lot of faith and trust in you to be able to bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. You know, moving from same job, same industry to, yep. in many instances, different job, different industry. Right. Yep. So I'm interested. How do you sort of how does that sit with you in terms of what you're saying about you know employ a person for a task yep. um, versus investing in uh, broad competency and I imagine attitude, yep. uh, knowing that they're coming with a deficit of you know requisite um, skills at mm-hmm. least to begin with. Yep. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, look, I, I, I'm going to take you back to when I started when we were bought out in London mm-hmm. and I ended up being in a much larger firm and this was this is at its core an actuarial firm. So actuaries um, are a group of people not dissimilar to doctors that are highly qualified, highly specialised, very high opinions of their academic credentials, mm-hmm. especially in London. Um, you know, it was very much about not just how good you are or what you've done, mm-hmm. which university you went mm-hmm. to. So on the spectrum. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. We call them the peacocks. Right. You know, they come in, they fluff their feathers, yeah, right. and, and away they go. But, you know, they um, all of a sudden this uneducated kid from Blacktown was their boss. Mm. And I had PhDs from Cambridge, and I had PhDs from um, Oxford, and mm. a, few, a few other universities, etc. And it was a big learning curve for them and for me um, and but for me the best thing is I'm very comfortable having people that work for me that are much smarter than me mm-hmm. so everybody has a different type of intelligence and a different type of you know they're smart at different type of things but because somebody's very very good at actuaries or in one case this guy was a laser scientist and started crunching numbers for it doesn't mean that they know how to run a business mm-hmm. or run a team. Mm-hmm. I know how to run a business. I know how to run a team. Wouldn't have a clue what they do. Mm-hmm. But I'm very, very comfortable in allowing them to be smarter than me. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds a bit strange, but some people have an issue. A lot of people want to be the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, I want everybody that works for me to be smarter because it makes us smarter. Um, but it doesn't mean I can't lead them. Mm-hmm. So in regards to being put into these different positions... 
I might not have had the requisite skill base of that industry, but I had the skill base to hire the right people within that industry. Right. When I'm hiring those people, um, I look for two skill sets. On one side, if I'm hiring them as a leader, uh, a non-specialised leader, I'm looking for similar skill sets to myself. Mm -hmm. Do they have to be the smartest person in the room? Can they manage people who... Um, whose skill sets is much broader than their own in regards to a specialised field. Um, but on the flip side, if I'm, ma if I'm hiring a technician or an engineer or a geologist, uh, or they have to be very specialised in their own skill set. Um, so it's horses for courses in regards to that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned um, that uh, you know, part of your success was... Uh, You've had some great mentors yeah. during your career, and and your adaptability and you know having this intrinsic sort of leadership orientation. Mm -hmm. What about you know you've you've said a number of times I grew up in you know uh, uh, a uh, unprivileged you know early childhood mm -hmm. and so what what do you think of the skills and that you've gained along the way that have allowed you to build out this capability mm -hmm. to, to take you to where you are now? Look, I think it started with instinct. You know, mm -hmm. and I think the way I grew up and the environment I grew up in, you had to quickly read people. Mm -hmm. You know, there was certain circumstances where, you know, you had to make sure what you're saying or how you're acting doesn't end in a way you don't particularly want it to end. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that street smart, for lack of a better word, gets you to gets always seems to get you three or four steps ahead in certain environments mm -hmm. so I think that's where it starts um, but along the way um, you pick up the different skills on how to apply that in a better way mm -hmm. you, know, it, I, you know it always makes me laugh at how much I thought I knew at 18 and 20 mm. you know to now thinking I've got so much more to learn you yeah. know um, I'd love to go back to 18 year old me and give it a slap what are we all um, but in saying that, I think that confidence allows you to open doors um, that, you know, you might not necessarily open without going through the right channels. Mm -hmm. I think that if you go, when you go to university or the right university or the right specialist, there's an expectation that I deserve that next step. Mm -hmm. Where I think that if you don't have that, you, you do it through confidence mm. and, and instinct and a few mm -hmm. other things. Um, but then working with these mentors and these specialists in the different fields allows you how to apply it. You know, yeah. I, I, people say to me often, I'm surprised you didn't go to university. And I think, I think it's a strange comment because mm -hmm. people are that assumption that to be successful, you have to go to university. Mm. Mind you, all my kids are going to go to university. <laughs> but, well, um, you think so now. I think so now, all right? Because I, I think it's... It's very important now, especially compared to when I went through school. But for the first 10 years of my career, I think I had something to prove. Like, mm -hmm. I don't need it. I didn't need to go to university. Mm -hmm. And then post that and with my experience out with professionals, I started questioning, what did I miss by not going to university? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a skill-based thing. It wasn't... I never thought to myself, oh, did I... You know, did I not learn how to program properly mm. or did I not learn this management technique, whatever. That, that is experience. I think most roles are experience. Mm. But there's a level of um, application and discipline of just learning how to learn. Mm -hmm. You know, you must 
start, you have to do the yards of listening to stuff you might not be interested in or are. You have to do your own research, you have to present a paper, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. You miss that. And I think that actually um, f- for the lower levels of your career, that does impact you if you can't deliver at that level continuously because you've never learned how to. Mm-hmm. I was lucky, I skipped those levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but without any doubts, it has, you know, it has taught me that, you know, and again via these mentors, how important that is and how mm-hmm. important it is to recognise that in people that I'm hiring. Not saying they only hire people who have university degrees, mm-hmm. but there's a, a broad skill base there um, that you'd like to see people are competent in, depending on the role. Yeah, I think that... Uh from my perspective as recruiting senior executives, uh, uh, there is a desire from an employer to see a commitment to ongoing professional development. Yeah. They want to see people who have got a commitment to lifelong earning. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it doesn't need to be a formal degree. You know, it could be anything. I mean, I did an executive MBA. I'm really pleased that I did it. Yeah. I love doing it. Uh, but then the MBA schools would say to me, oh, come back and talk to our students about how to get a job. Yep. And I'd go and I'd say, okay, what questions have you got? And one of their first questions is, oh, now that I've got an MBA, you know, how much <laughs> is that worth in the market? And I say, nothing. It's yeah. not worth anything. Yeah. If you don't have the practical key achievements and yeah, transferable yeah, yeah. skills, it yeah. doesn't matter what piece of paper you've got. And in fact, uh, you know, I often say to people, I think going and doing Toastmasters yeah. was probably more important to my career yeah, yeah. than going and doing my undergraduate business degree. Yeah. So, I mean, by the time you're in a sort of a general management type role, nobody could care less. No. Know. Well, but in saying that, and something you said that was interesting there, where you said, how much is it worth to me? And that's a big thing for teams, I guess, creating teams is the motive. Mm. So I, I think, and now I've got a lot of people I mentor or have, you know, worked on my teams that later in their careers have gone to get their MBA mm. and in my my opinion that's the right time to do it because the Definitely. reason's different absolutely yeah, and if you're coming out of university and want to get an MBA because you think it makes you worth more yeah it's the motives wrong yeah and I think if the motives wrong then the application of it's mm-hmm. going to be wrong uh, that's absolutely right and uh, you know in fact I've spoken to the head of MBA schools at most of the universities and I said, look, you're putting people who have worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken, yeah, yeah. you know, directly out and of nothing the degree. Wrong with that. Oh, no, of course, you know, for sure. I worked at I Woolies. Love, for I love the KFC. <laughs> I worked at Woolies for four years, yeah. but um, you know, straight into an MBA. Hmm. But a, a big part of the experience of an MBA is coming in and talking about how it's applying to your job. Well, yeah. if you don't have a job that gives you the capacity to utilize it, by the time you come to utilize it, most of it's all forgotten yeah. anyway. Yeah, it's um, uh, like you. I, I uh, you know, I hope my kids go to uni, and yeah. uh, I certainly have a strong belief in formal education. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's not the golden ticket by any stretch no. of the imagination. So let's get to talking about Excel. Sure. So um, uh, tell us a little bit about you know when you stepped in, and what did the business look like then, and what yeah. does it look like now, and you know, this move from being, I think, mechanical to IoT and flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, look, I think um, the business when I stepped into it, um, or as we bought it especially, um, was very much a successful small-scale business. Right. You know, we had an inventor-founder 
who had developed some good products mm-hmm. um, that were being released into the market and were being improved on each model. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good products alone don't necessarily make a business as mm-hmm. such. Great products, actually. Um, and I think when we stepped into the business, it was really about how do we scale mm-hmm. that. Um, and anybody who's grown a business or scaled a business understands that it's a whole different skill set. Um, it's always it always interests me how executives and founders believe they should be able to do something because they've either been there for a long time or they've owned the business or whatever, but don't accept the fact that it's a whole new skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, so growing the business, investing in the business, looking for other acquisitions um, is something that you need experience in to be able to do. Um, so the, the business itself did have some IoT-based solutions, which were, again, which were great, um, but they need to have that, that level of discipline put in on the manufacturing and product development side um, and the implementation side mm-hmm. of these products. So you're starting to step into a world where, you know, the scary, I guess the scary world is when you're a small shop and you've developed these great IoT-based solutions um, and are new to the market, you know, uh, people start to rely on them. Mm. And then they become systems critical. Mm -hmm. And then with that comes the responsibility of being secure, reliable, accurate, which seems simple enough, but as you grow in size and in that responsibility, um, you know, you've got to put in a lot more stringent compliance um, structure in mm-hmm. the business. Um, so I think that's kind of where we are at the moment. You know, I think we've got some great products out there. Um, we've, we're starting to enter the world of um, application development and um, IoT implementation pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Our more mechanical, industrial-style um, products are groundbreaking. Um, the one we're just releasing, the uh, power unit, is um, you know will create efficiencies in mining production probably unseen from a small bit of um, equipment uh, in a long time. Um, so it's a very important part of our business, and it's mm-hmm. it's, it's that part of the business. Um, that we're focusing heavily on at the moment to grow mm-hmm. that will in turn fund the development for the more you know, um, sophisticated IoT part mm-hmm. of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and as such, we've just acquired a software development company um, that, uh, that completes in the next couple of weeks. And we're looking at um, acquiring hardware development companies as in PCB boards and... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, devices. So the vertical sort of supply vertical, chain. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's important. And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think I've got some challenges ahead of me in regards to the technology side of the business in the fact that I don't believe that this, I'm not going to say this government, I'm not being political to it, our governments mm-hmm. in Australia support um, entrepreneurs and and small developing companies enough. They definitely talk a big game when it comes to tech, but don't show it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be hard to attract and retain high-quality personnel at scale. Mm. Um, So I think it's our responsibility and my responsibility to not only try to grow my business, but to try to 
facilitate the industry broadly enough to start to allow for that. So mm-hmm. we're going to start doing as much lobbying as we can and, and, and start pushing that way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I do see the future of this business being much more on the technical side. Um, but the current state of business, in the next few years, all of our growth is going to come from what I'm calling our mechanical product. Mm-hmm. But these are pretty, these are cutting edge, you know, engine-based products. So, <laughs> you, so you're referring to the ARU product? Yeah, that's right. Right, okay. Yeah. So The uh, APU product. Oh, APU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, what, uh, so um, was that a product that was on the drawing board when you made the acquisition? It was, yeah. It, it was, was, okay. Yeah. And so that was part of the desirability of the business? It was, it, it was yeah, it definitely was. And, and a lot of our satellite-based stuff was, but... Again, this is this goes back to the point of where the business was and where it needs to go. So, mm-hmm. we had what was a good concept, and you know it was it was a concept that I took out to one of our contacts that owns a fairly large uh, mining contracting business. Mm-hmm. And his words to me was that concept's fantastic. As soon as you build them, I'm going to buy a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. And then once we went through our first stage of R and D, and I hit him up, he's like, "No, nah, probably not." I'm like, well, hang on, we talked about it. Goes, well, what, what you've got conceptually is right, mm. but it's too agricultural. As in, you know, it was an engine in a box, you know, and we kind of went, okay, well, the, every piece is right, but the marketing's wrong. Okay. And people, that seems silly, especially to when, when you go back to the mechanical engineers and the mechanical mm. guys and say, it's the wrong colour, the right. blow, blow a gasket, right? right? What are you talking about? So but, what he's saying is, although this might be great in the mining space, yep. the way we are perceiving it is it's something used on a farm. Yeah, it's not attractive. Right. Right. And that's funny, but I mean, it, marketing's everything. You go have a look at a brand new dump truck from Cat mm. that is going to be destroyed, you know, within the first few months. Mm. It's a beautiful yellow mm. leather, you know, everything's there. So we went back, not to the drawing board, but we replaced as many components as we could with cat-based components, mm-hmm. except for our black box style mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we cat love our products, so cat are actually going to support the product through their own marketing and dealer network and, and put the cat label on it, which is very rare. Uh, we went to an industrial designer mm-hmm. and we make this thing beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, as beautiful as you can make a box. Um, and redid the marketing of it and then mm. everyone like we love that right you know we went to a, a mining show where people were coming and go oh that is awesome what is it mm. you know it, it, and which it always takes me back to you know I think it was Steve Jobs comment when he got asked what makes your computers better he goes the buttons look so good you're going to want to lick them right right and then you'd think in mining it doesn't apply but it applies mm. you know and that was that's the difference in being able to invest in and convince the underlying team mm-hmm. that that's important, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a fairly strong argument that says it does the same job, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it does the same job, but it wasn't appealing, mm-hmm. and now it's appealing, and it does the same job, mm-hmm. and when we say it does the same job, it's a multifaceted product that hits all parts of the mining uh, decision matrix from the sort of maintenance managers uh, up to you know the financial controllers. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sell points there very easily. But Jesus hard to sell an ugly box. Mm. Now we've got a beautiful box right. that does all the great things attached to it. Fantastic. And so, you know, this is where you're at in terms of the business now. We have this product, we have a light tower product. We're wanting to move or not move into, but 
diversify and make our business more IoT centric. So if you project out to the future, you know, what's the vision for XLM say uh, in, uh, where are we, 2020, 2025? Yeah. Um, Look, I think XLM 2025 will still be producing fantastic asset-based products. Um, and we will go through a rigorous R&D um, approach to make sure the new products that we develop on the mining asset side are as groundbreaking and as good as what we currently have. Mm-hmm. Um, the, that does actually spur into the IoT space. So, mm-hmm. for example, the light towers that we build are super efficient, very, um, very sturdy, um, regarded as one of the best in the mining space. But it also comes with our satellite tracking technology, um, where we can put we put uh, devices on that that allows you to track the light tower, turn it on and off remotely, mm-hmm. know when it needs servicing, know when it needs fuel. Now, why anybody would particularly want that on a light tower, which is probably the most one of the most boring assets on a mine site, but they need them. Well, in Australia, especially when you're paying one or two guys to drive around every day to turn light towers on, off, find them, fuel them. You know, it, you're talking, you're into the multi-hundred thousands of dollars of direct cost per year per site. Mm-hmm. And that just disappears mm-hmm. overnight. Um, but in order to do that, you need the infrastructure to do that, which means the IoT platform, um, it needs the... the um, engagement with the satellite providers which we have within MySat. Uh, it needs the devices to be tested thoroughly and working with the equipment um, which we do. And again, you know, we had a platform that was ugly as sin. Mm. You know, just ugly. You know, it just like you, you, you open up the platform and it was an engineered designed mm-hmm. dial mm-hmm. that was very functional. Mm-hmm. You know, and we just took that to a graphic designer and we make that beautiful, mm. you know. And again, and the big buzzwords in IT stuff is obviously user experience. Yeah. You know. um, and we improved it, mm. you know. And then we found clients going, "Oh, we're going to build a control room mm. because your pictures look so good." Yeah. You know? And they want their big control room up there, sitting up there. So it really is spanning across that, you know, more mechanical base solutions that we offer, but across the board to provide them with these IoT mm-hmm. services. Now beyond that we will definitely be in a space where um, clients and other industries come to us to use the platform for multiple IoT solutions. Mm -hmm. We will build the best asset tracking um, platform Mm -hmm. for industrial applications. Mm -hmm. So a bit like Intel, it'll be powered by XLM. It'll be powered by XLM. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Great, fantastic. And at that point, you know, where do you see the business? Will it stay in Brisbane? How big will it be? I know that you've got international aspirations. 100%. Without any doubts, we're already selling internationally. Mm -hmm. Um, And that will continue. That will grow. And I think, you know, I've got a real bias for that. I've done it before. Mm -hmm. I see the advantages of Mm -hmm. doing it. If I never got on a plane again, I'd be happy, but I know I'll continually get on planes because I'm addicted to it. (laughs) Um, Look, without sounding wishy-washy, if I had my, um, I think as you were saying, uh, preferred reality, right. it would stay in Brisbane. Right. It would be Brisbane headquartered. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really going to come down to how influential we are in regards to being able to get the right people mm-hmm. and, and retain them and mm-hmm. keep them. Um, um, I would love nothing more than to have a Brisbane-based 
you know, global, um, you know, IoT slash software right. company. Um, but it's going to really come down to what the environment gives Right. Me. So we'll be able to earn the number plate sun- uh, smart state. Remember <laughs> when they did that? Mate, but uh, this, this, is, this is my frustration is, you know, it's... There's so many people in this country willing to have a go at these things. The political nature of allowing them to is really tough. So it's just a reality. You chat to the Atlassian guys and you see they're, they're pushing the barrel very, very hard on this mm. stuff. Um, government's calling us smart doesn't make us smart. You mm-hmm. know, we, we, need, we need to have real support and in no other way but to make it feasible to attract the best people because mm-hmm. it's the best people that build the best companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a comp- it's a competitive mm-hmm. reality. It's you know, it's easy to say, oh, you can have people working in multiple places around the world mm-hmm. from home. I think it's been proved that it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it works in certain aspects, and you've got to have that flexibility. But nothing works better than a team of people working as a team of people, mm-hmm. um, and smart people working next to each other create amazing solutions. Mm-hmm. And what about in terms of your own career? You know, you've talked about your aspirations for the business, but what are you excited about for Garage? Yeah, I think for me again, it's it's going back into that growth stage. It's been a while since I've been, you know, boots on mm-hmm. CEO, and at the stage of this company, you know, that means we're you know doing acquisitions and, and hiring the right executives to vacuuming when the floor's dirty. You know, you, you need to there's you know, I'm a big believer in you build out the um, your org chart mm-hmm. and you fill every box until you fill the right one. Mm-hmm. Or your manager fills the box mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. Um, and for me again it's being able to build that company that the people within it and the investors in it are proud of what's being created mm-hmm. for whatever reasons they are. People are going to have different motivations, mm-hmm. um, but it, it needs to be something that within you know that sort of five year time frame um, that people feel successful and mm-hmm. however they deem success. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, look, Grano, uh, before we wrap it up, we've spoken about your background and we've spoken yep. about the business and so on. Tell us a little bit about Grant when he's not at work. Oh. Look, I'm uh, I'm deep, deep in young kids at right. the moment. So, look for me when I'm not at work. Um, you know, it's it's being at sports with my kids. And right. You know, love camping. Don't camp as much, obviously, with the little kids. But hopefully, they get to the point we camp soon. I'm sure you're a glamper too, aren't you? Well, I am actually. <laughs> if it doesn't have a hot shower and if it doesn't have a spring mattress, I'm not doing it. Oh god. Um, but you can these days, right? Yeah. Which is great. I'm a big lover of what we have locally here in Brisbane. I think the ability to go um, over to Stratty or up to Morton or up mm-hmm. to Noosa and, um, is is exceptional for mm-hmm. what's a fairly good-sized CBD. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love my rugby league, so I'm pretty mm-hmm. excited that that's coming back on. Oh, fantastic. Well, look, uh, before we uh, conclude, is there anything else you wanted to add or anything I didn't ask that you think I should have? No, no, that was a... That was a, a, a Good fun process. Yeah, good. All right, well, look, thanks very much and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Cheers. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. 
While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.